the biggest lesson that you and I learned was, and I hate talking about this topic, but what we learned about is just the immense fraud and corruption in modern biomedical science. And in particular on what this topic, what Paul's talking about, which is what we think we know, what that knowledge base that we've always relied on. And I, I, I like to tease Paul. I'm like, Paul, you're older and smarter than I am. You should have known better. But Paul, I think we all kind of prayed at the feet of these medical journals, you know, the, the, these high impact medical journals. We, we thought that was the word. That was the truth. That was the best science. And COVID exposed that belief to be completely false. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Same path, different beginnings, a common story. Dr. Goodyear here of the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast, and do we have a show for you today? In 2000, 2018, they published an article looking at transcriptomics in and for the implications for neuronal regeneration. Now, we're not talking about transcriptomics. We've done that before. We're not talking about neurons or neuronal regeneration. What we're talking about is regeneration, restoration, dare I say, even a revolution in healthcare. I have today Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Paul Merrick. I've known Paul for uh, quite a while and I'm getting to know Pierre, but these two gentlemen, physicians, doctors, they are pioneers. They, they really need no introduction, but I think I need to set the context and the, the platform here of their background and what they've done because it'll really show you they are front and center in those that can work to restore the doctor-patient relationship. And the reason why we're talking about the doctor-patient relationship is because they are leading the FLCCC annual conference here in the Phoenix area here in just a few weeks and it's entitled The Healthcare Revolution, Restoring the Doctor-Patient Relationship. And their experience recently can really highlight how we do that. So first on Dr. Pierre Corey, he is a pulmonary and critical care specialist, highly trained, highly um, skilled in taking care of people at their sickest. He stood tall early in the pandemic to challenge the global narrative to guess what? Help save lives. He did more than stand tall. It seemed like everywhere I turned, these two gentlemen were not only speaking out, but they were acting for the purpose of patience. He spoke loud. He spoke big. And like I said, he was everywhere. There was no, there was no medium they wouldn't go to to speak truth. He's a published author here recently, War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. You can find that on Amazon. I encourage you to check that out. 
I always like to look for their publications because it shows you how broad their, their connection is to the community of medicine. Unless there's multiple Pierre Corys out there, which I don't think there are, on PubMed, there's 54 listings that has his name attached to that. So, Paul, if I've misrepresented that, please let me know. And he's also president and chief medical officer of Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, that is FLCCC. Now, Dr. Paul Merrick, these, these two gentlemen are kind of attached at the hip, it seems like, since the pandemic. But he also is a pulmonary and critical care specialist. Again, when you look at it from a physician perspective, these are some of the most highly skilled physicians dealing with some of the most difficult patient health conditions. He stood tall prior to the pandemic, focusing on vitamin C and really working to innovate in the arena of sepsis. I've talked about this before, and you've probably seen that. He stood tall early as did uh, Dr. Pierre Corey in the pandemic. And he did that just like Pierre to save lives. He published a recent book, Cancer Care, The Role of Repurposed Drugs and Metabolic Interventions in Treating Cancer. Looking at PubMed, unless he's cloned himself, there's 365 listings on there. And he's chairman and chief scientific officer of Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, FLCCC as well. Pierre? Paul, it is truly an honor to have you on the podcast. And let me tell you what, it is an honor for the listeners to be able to hear what you have to say about where medicine is and where it's going. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning. Thank you, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. And obviously with my a great friend, we joined at the hip, but uh, not physically. <laughs> um, and as you can see, our paths have kind of, been in parallel and uh, believe it or not you know the way we met was through vitamin c um that's how this bromance actually began you know he thought vitamin c was nonsense until he actually tried it out in his icu and he saw some really um interesting results and so you know we've we've been working together since then so what what year was that, Paul? Was that 2017 or earlier? Yes. Yeah, so we actually met in um, 2017 in Ireland, believe it or not. No, That's no, no, Paul. Paul, we met in 2020 in January of 2020. That's the first time we physically met. But we oh yes, you're right. Years. You know, my my, I have some degree of dementia. Uh, it happens. Yes. Yeah, so. Um, we met in 2020, actually. Believe it or not, it was at the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know what was happening in Ireland. But our, you know, association with vitamin C goes back to about 2016. Is that correct, Pierre? No, because like you said, Paul, um, when your paper was published, I, I mean, I looked at it. And I was like, what the hell is this? A, you know, huge reduction in mortality from vitamin C. And I just, I didn't know what to make of it. It was too preposterous. It was like a paper from Mars. But I knew who Paul Marek was. And I, he hadn't gotten anything wrong. In fact, I, you know, he was widely respected. And so a paper like that was just weird. It just it didn't make sense. And um, I am really ashamed to admit, but I ignored it. I ignored it for a year. So I don't know, Paul, when was that published? 2017? 2017. Yeah. yeah. So I ignored it for a year. 
And then, like, kind of my origin story was I was having a really bad week in the ICU, just a lot of dying. Uh, I mean, we, you know, I, I would say 10 to 20% of our patients on, a, on an average week die, but you can have some weeks where the mortality rates are just higher. And I was having a really uh, draining week and so many sick patients. And I remember there was a patient, uh, a Chinese patient, the family were just begging me to think of anything else they could offer this poor man who was literally hours from death. And I was like, you know, I remember that Marek paper with his little protocol. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I trotted out the protocol, I tried out the paper and I ordered it. Uh, and unfortunately, the patient died, um, you know, in, in a few hours. But, you know, as we know, nothing works in the moribund. I mean, when you're that close to death, it's it's nearly impossible to bring someone back. And But it was interesting, though, because I had tried it, you know. And since it was having a, such a bad week, like, I was like, you know what? Let me just keep trying this. And I used it on another patient who was um, who got transferred to the surgical service because they had necrotizing fasciitis. And But before I transferred them and they went to the OR, I, I thought I saw a softening like in, in uh, or an improvement in her vitals, like a l- little less vasopressor. She just started to look a little bit better. And I was like, interesting. And then, and then I'll just finish my story with saying the third patient I tried it on, I, I had never seen a response like that. It was, a, um, it was a bone marrow transplant patient who was like six days out from the bone marrow. So there was zero cells. He hadn't engrafted yet. You know, literally no neutrophils, and he came in as is typical for those kind of patients with essentially gram-negative sepsis. You know, from the gut, and um, he was four out of four E. coli in the blood. I discovered the next day, but when he crashed into my ICU on like two pressors, no urine output for the last twelve hours. He'd gotten tons of fluids from the bone marrow uh, team, and he was confused. He was breathing fast. And I mean, I knew he was going to land on a vent or, or, or end dialysis and started Paul's protocol immediately. And um, I, I, it's almost indescribable what happened next. But like literally within about a half an hour, an hour, everything started to improve at a rate and at a magnitude I had never, ever seen before. I mean, literally pressures coming down, like the amount of vasopressors he required. Urine output appeared in, within a few hours. And when I got back in the next morning, I went to see him because he was by far my sickest patient. I remember his wife, too. His wife was losing it. She'd never seen her husband that sick. She literally thought he was going to die. I thought he was going to die. Come in the next morning. He's sitting in an armchair next to his bed, eating scrambled eggs. No, uh, he's off of all vasopressors, and he still had a a, a urinary catheter in, huge, uh, full of urine. And he was clear calm, comfortable. And the nurse tells me, oh, he's going back to the bone marrow transplant floor. And I'm like, what? What? I'd never seen that. And and I, I was like, basically, that kind of changed my life. And and then the, the other part of the story, I hope this is not too boring, but Paul Marrick, the great Paul Marrick had written me like, Two years prior, out of the blue, because I had published an editorial in, a, in, in, a, in, in one of the top journals in our specialty, and that editorial was informed a lot by Paul's work. And Paul just reached out to me, you know, this great Paul Merrick, and I'm like a junior guy, and uh, he just congratulated me on the editorial. Then, as he does, he's like, oh, by the way, you didn't mention this paper. <laughs> so he sent me a paper that I had missed somehow. And um, But the weird thing is, Nathan... I didn't write back to Paul. 
And the reason why I was in a personal crisis, um, I have three daughters. Two of them developed catastrophic cases of pandas. I'm sure you know what pandas is. Um, and I was literally immersed and broiled in, in, in a very, very sick child who was being failed by the medical system. I, I mean, I was, I was just completely at a, at, I, I was a mess. I was a total mess uh, personally. And I just couldn't write back to Paul. And then after that vitamin C case, like, I think that night I went home and I'm like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> I'm writing an email to Paul. And, and we got on the phone within a day or two. And I think we we're on the phone the first time for like two hours. And Paul told me so much interesting stuff. And I, I just, I, I was so fascinated by the topic. And then, and Paul and I, I think we just bonded right then. And, and the rest is history. Well, I think what you did in that story, and, and I think Paul Merrick, you've talked about your, you know, your story with vitamin C before as well. And you can find that on YouTube, but what you've laid out is the the expertise that's required in the critical care specialty. But also, I think what you, you touched on there that's really important is the timing of therapy, right? Timing is everything. And I think that is important to what we're going to talk about here with this conference, because timing is everything across the board, whether that be in a patient that is septic or in the critical care, or whether that be in culture, whether that be in life, timing, it's the opportunity and you seize it or you don't. And you guys yeah. clearly, I, I, get, I gotta give you hats off because the first six months of the pandemic, the first three months, I was, I was stunned, I, I didn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, you know, doctors saying the science is settled, there's no reason to change, you can no longer, you know, repurpose medications, you can't use this, you know, it's a it's a horse dewormer, and it's like, I, I, I didn't know what to think. You guys were clearly able to process a lot quicker and jump into it, so clearly there, your timing was good also. So you guys have a propensity to hit the timing at the right time. Did, did you see that at that moment, Paul? Did you see that, that, that there was a timing, that this was important, yeah. that this was going to bring something new? Did you see that? Yeah, so what you say is really important. There's no disease that we know that benefits from delaying therapy. And so this was quite clear with covid so, you know, we knew, Pierre and I knew that early treatment was important. And if you remember at the time, the NIH, the CDC, the WH said, there's no effective treatment, go home, stay at home until you go blue, which is clearly preposterous. There's no disease that you can't treat, and there's no disease that benefits from a delay in treatment. So we knew early on that early treatment was important. And I think it holds today as much as it did then. And so, you know, no matter what the disease is, you know, you want to have a thoughtful approach, but you don't want to wait until it's too late. Um, you know, clearly Pierre's first patient, you know, once, once the genie's out, the bottle is out. You really need to strike early. Which I, that's yeah. a perfect transition, Pierre, to, to your book. I mean, the war on ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. I mean, if we had started the use of ivermectin and other therapies from the beginning, we would probably, probably, not probably, definitely be looking at a different outcome. The, the, oh, Nathan, I mean, yeah. 
if we had championed and recognized uh, early treatments, and you know, I, I also have to be humble here, and I say, you know, I wrote the book "The War on Ivermectin," but one of my colleagues could have easily written the book "The War on Hydroxychloroquine" because it was the same war just fought in two different years. Remember, hydroxychloroquine is the first one that peaked its head above uh, above the ground, and they they whacked it. Um, but had hydroxychloroquine become standard of care immediately, just empirically, like on a, on a precautionary principle, just saying, hey, safe drug, looks like it works. Had we just distributed that to everyone, frontline patients, just automatically done that, the pandemic would never have happened. It, it would have been a completely different landscape. And, and even more so with ivermectin. I mean, I, I think ivermectin is more... Uh, potent and hydroxychloroquine, but they both work really well. And that's just two things that work, right? Right. We know okay. from uh, that brilliant group, c19early.com, you know, the anonymous group of scientists, they, they've done just amazing work compiling all of the clinical trials data for every treatment. Um, I don't know if you've been to that website, but it, it, it's a phenomenal website. And they, they have like a real-time updated meta-analysis for every therapy, even even the corrupt pharmaceutical ones. Um Anything trialed in, in COVID, and, and right the last count, I think there were 39 effective medicines in COVID. Already exist. We, we only hear about a couple, right? It's Paxlovid, Remdesivir, and, and corticosteroids. Yeah. But there's literally 39 things that work. And at the top of the pile, it's ivermectin. I think quercetin is up there, although there's not as many trials on quercetin. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, ivermectin is pretty much at the top. But there, there's 39 things that could that, that worked. Yeah, so so clearly timing, and like you said, ivermectin, it is kind of like vitamin C is, uh, many will look at it as the flagship of integrative medicine. Paul, your timing there was impeccable. Um, ivermectin in COVID, and, and honestly, moving forward, uh, Pierre, your, your timing there is impeccable. And then, Paul, you've made a little bit of a pivot with your book because you've pivoted now to kind of integrative cancer care, but with repurposed medication. So why did you write that book? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a good question, Nathan, because I'm not an oncologist. But obviously, you know, COVID uh, piqued our interest in repurposed drugs. And it became clear to me that there are many repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals that are highly effective uh, against cancer. And so I became interested in the topic. And so, you know, I... I I, I then reviewed it. So, you know, I, I don't have any conflict of interest. I don't have any skin in the game. So that in that respect, I could objectively review the data that's out there. And it is surprising the, the number of really good publications. So this is not hidden. This is not hidden in the gray literature. So th there is an extensive body of literature looking at metabolic interventions and repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals for the treatment of cancer. But, you know, much like, as you said, timing, timing is really important. You know, patients need to do this upfront, you know, while they still have reasonable functional status. And the, the, what makes it somewhat appealing is it's not an either or, you know, if patients still choose to, undergo chemotherapy, they can use this in, in parallel as, uh, you know, uh, as a supplement to their conventional chemo. And the data is quite clear. It actually acts synergistically with chemotherapy. So you can get away with using lower doses with less toxicity. And so, the, you know, the, there is an enormous body of science. 
And this is the true science. Um, you know, in Europe, many of the oncologists are actually integrative oncologists and, you know, use the best of both worlds. But because medicine in this country is so commercialized and so controlled by big pharma, most oncologists in this country don't want to hear anything about it. I, Paul, so I, I actually didn't know that. Um, in Europe, they're much more willing and uh, they, they employ more repurposed therapies than in, in the U.S.? Yeah, so surprisingly, you could be in a uh, oncology ward in Israel and they would use repurposed drugs. Huh. At the same time, they're using conventional therapy, uh, which is kind of interesting. Is that not yeah, correct? Yeah, you look at in, in Israel, you look at it in Germany, particularly in Germany. Um, integrative oncology is oncology. They're, they're not distinct entities. And of course, there's a lot more autonomy amongst the practice of uh, medicine by physicians in Germany by their law. But you'll, they'll be getting, you know, fever induction mistletoe therapy alongside with full dose chemo. And radiation. I mean, they are really bringing the best of all strategies to the table for patients. And it, it, you know, Germany does a lot of great things from a manufacturer standpoint. You know, they make some of the best cars and and, and just other things from a manufacturing standpoint, uh, compounding. But they truly, I think, innovate in the arena of medicine for doctors. And I hope you listeners and viewers are catching what we're talking about here. I don't want you to get focused on the COVID. That is the um, you know, most recent events and providing context. These are critical care experts that are innovators that ask questions. Honestly, they're scientists at their core. They don't group think. They critical think. And that's one of the things that connects these two physicians that is important that we need more of. So I think this is a good transit. Go ahead. Yeah, so what's really important, yeah, what's really important, Nathan, is you ask questions. And, you know, as Pira myself, we've evolved with time. Our understanding of things have evolved. But that's how science works. You incrementally gain knowledge. And if you, you know, you have a closed mind, you think about, you know, a single narrative, that's not how science works. You know, sound, science works by one mistake at a time, and you learn from the mistake, and you move forward. And so you have to think critically. You have to engage in a conversation. <laughs> you know, science is about exchanging information, you know, arguing, dissecting, and working out what works best. And there's no question of doubt that it's, it's a progressive thing. You know, you know, Pierre and I were recently talking about the spread of COVID. And so, you know, originally we thought it was droplet spread. And that's what we thought. Now we understand that it's aerosol spread. And so, I mean, I believe the original narrative. I now understand that we were wrong. And I think it's okay in science to admit, you know what? We were wrong. It wasn't based on being malicious or having some ulterior motive, you know, we just didn't understand and we were wrong. And you, you, you acknowledge that you made a mistake and then you move forward. That, that's how science is But you based. were seeking truth. I mean, um, you were seeking truth. And, and in that search for truth, in that journey for truth, 
there's ups and downs, there's lefts and rights, there's, you know, you, you discover what you think to be truth, and then there's new innovation. So, so what you're saying is basically that, you know, science is never settled, right? Absolutely. And so it, it has, it's, it has to change. And I think you have to be open enough, open-minded enough to realize that, you know, not everything we do and everything we say is correct, but you have to have an open mind to question. It's really important to ask questions. And so I will argue with Pia about almost everything because I, you have to question. And, you know, who knows what the root, the truth is, but I mean, the goal is to, you know, move forward and try and understand the truth and obviously be humble enough to understand that we are going to make mistakes. But, you know, Paul, I think the biggest lesson that you and I learned was, and I hate talking about this topic, but what we learned about is just the immense fraud and corruption in modern biomedical science. And in particular on what this topic, what Paul's talking about, which is what we think we know, what that knowledge base that we've always relied on. And I, I, I like to tease Paul. I'm like, Paul, you're older and smarter than I am. You should have known better. But Paul, I think we all kind of prayed at the feet of these medical journals you know the, the, these high impact medical journals we we thought that was the word that was the truth that was the best science and covid exposed that belief to be completely false and that when paul just t- just talked about what we have to question well we, it's it's not only that we have to question we have to question way more than we questioned and then where do you seek the knowledge and the data to answer those questions. You you can't question journals and then use those journals to answer those questions. You have to actually look uh, outside. And I think, Paul, I, I think that that's transformed us. I think that's made us very different physicians. I say it frequently. It's, it's estranged me from the practice of medicine. I mean, not the practice of medicine, but it's estranged me from from the institutions of medicine. I, I, I mean, I just don't trust them anymore. I, I can't trust experts. I can't, because they're constantly referencing high impact medical journals. And I, all I've seen is an endless stream of lies being published in high impact medical journals. I mean, I, I can't remember what journal it was, but they literally published this some, some review paper, which concluded that the vaccines were completely safe in pregnancy and in the abstract, they mentioned that stillbirths were higher in the unvaccinated. I mean, it was the most blatant, catastrophic lie I've ever seen, and it was in one of the high-impact journals. And so I, I don't know. Did I, they just, not I'm exclude lost. pregnant women in the original studies? Oh, oh, of course. But this was like a review paper looking at whatever database they were looking at. I, I don't even. I couldn't even read the paper because. I, to be honest, I just read the abstract. There's no way I was going to bring myself to read that paper. It, it, it's just completely, it's propaganda what's in those journals. And the, the, that propaganda, remember, advertising is a form of propaganda. And when I look at medical journals now, I, they, they look, they, they basically function as advertisements for pharmaceutical products. And and they will tell you any lie uh, that you need to hear in order to it buy It seems that like product. medicine or the powers that be in medicine are more interested in a narrative. They're more interested in propagating a narrative, thus propaganda, than actually saying what what and where is the science leading? And, and that starts with questions. And that's what you two both and yep. the organization that you helped to find, uh, found 
you really begin to innovate in that area. And now you're, you're moving into a little bit of a different perspective this year, correct? With this conference and this theme. And so if you could tell the viewers and the listeners, uh, Pierre and Paul, you know, the conference, the theme, where it's located, how people can get here, and is it open to the public? I'll start with the easy stuff. So it's February 2nd through 4th. It's in Phoenix, um, nice sunny Phoenix. And um, so it's approximately, it's a two and a half day uh, conference. You asked the question, but yes, it's totally open to the, to the public. Um, we actually have two tracks uh, we have like a, a, a pro, right, Paul? We have two tracks, or is that just for the communities? Yeah, but we have two tracks. Yeah, okay. no, we have like a provided track and a, a track for the general public. Yeah, but you could easily. But, but they do quit. overlap each other. Yep. Yeah. So there's there's a lot for everybody. Um, it's partly a medical conference, like we've held before, really focusing on like in the past we've really overly focused on. Uh, what we call spike protein induced disease, right? So long COVID, long vax. Um, but you know, this year we've expanded the topics. There's uh, talks on uh, cancer. You're going to be there, Nathan. Um, we have more panels doing case discussions, and then we're really, you know, the other theme is really restoring and reclaiming medicine. Really, um, I mean, medicine. Uh, like I just said in my last answer, you know, Paul and I. We discovered how sick medicine is, uh, meaning how how sort of corrupt and and fraudulent it is. But even knowing how bad it was, what COVID did to medicine is just absolutely uh, shocking, and it's destroyed the, the doctor-patient relationship. I mean, the system now routinely goes after doctors, uh, tries to punish them, persecute them if they stray from this narrative or from these rigid uh, top-down protocols, and and so medicine's kind of. Um, it's been captured and um, we want to bring freedom back and we, we want to op- create a space where providers and patients uh, can come and, and, and learn like really objective, conflict of interest free, um, you know, a wider understanding for, to approach a lot of diseases and, and to, to learn more about what, where true health lies <laughs> and, and, how, and how to achieve it, how to protect it. Um, and I, and I think, um, we, we want to create that space, uh, around the FLCCC as, as a place to come, uh, maybe, maybe a refuge from the storm, you know, I don't know, a safe Harbor or something. Um, anyway, Paul, you have any other thoughts you want to add? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be a much more interactive conference than we had before, rather than being just didactic lectures. So I think it will be provide an opportunity for people to interact. We're going to, you know, focus on patient histories and patient experience. We, we're going to get involved the audience more. And so we, you know, audience participation. So it's, it's much, much, much of a coming together of like-minded people to exchange information. And I think the, the, you know, the, the, the greatest um, attribute of the conference is that people will be together with like-minded people that they can engage in conversations they can interact with people who think the way they do and hopefully you know we can you know we're not going to solve this enormous problem but at least we can provide some alternatives we can yeah. provide some thoughts on how what's to that website forward. pierre oh flccc.net so if you just go there it's right on the first page just to the right there's all the information links to the conference uh, flccc.net and you can actually sign up you can sign up from there yeah so time is running short yep that's where yeah, you're ready so it's you know we we yeah sorry uh 
you know, it's the 2nd to the 4th of February, which is coming up soon. And so early bird pricing is coming to an end. So, you know, we would recommend people would register pretty soon. Uh, you know, the hotels are, are filling up. And, you know, I think this will be one of our better conferences. Um, so, you know, if people people should come. They're, they're, I'm sure they will be, you know, um, impressed by the, the quality of the speakers and the people that attend. Yeah, I was blown away last year what you put on. And um, I think what you're doing here, again, your innovators and your timing, again, is proving to be impeccable together that you're really focusing in on, you know, what you've been awakened to learn about what's wrong with medicine. And instead of just being aware of it, you're actually doing something, not just speaking out because both of you spoke out, but you did more than speak. You actually acted and this conference and what you've done over the last several years is absolutely emblematic or it's not emblematic, but it's, um, it presents what you do in that you don't just learn, you don't just speak out, but you actually move to action. And I can't wait to see what this conference brings, because I do think like what you said, Paul, there, it is going to really present a different way to engage doctors doctors and patients together, which brings us to the theme of the conference, which is healthcare revolution, restoring the doctor patient relationship. Paul, did, do you see yourself as a revolutionary? Pierre, do you see yourself as a revolutionary? I, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, you know, you know, we were talking before we, we, we got on Nathan, but like, you know, before COVID, I mean, I, I had, I didn't realize this, but I had a really clear sense of what being a physician meant. And, you know, not that I had the Hippocratic Oath, like in, you know, emblazoned in my brain, but I, I really did, I really was living by certain precepts and morals and ethical code. And when COVID happened and the way I reacted, I literally thought most doctors would react like I would, right? Trying to help the patient, figuring out ways, you know, speaking out, you know, and and, and I, to be honest, privately that did happen. I, I, I immediately was on these big WhatsApp groups with other doctors and we're all sharing our experiences and we're all just trying to figure out this disease. And like, but then as COVID went on, I realized like so much of what we stand for, what I thought a physician stood for was trampled. Like medical ethics was literally thrown out the window. So many things have been violated. Uh, you know, the, the autonomy of physicians, medical ethics, you know, informed consent, things like that um, were completely ignored. And now I realize, and I'm sorry to be so cynical, but like so much of what I thought was real and held us together as, as a profession is rhetoric. And, and very few practice that. And some practice it, but they do it silently. And I, I don't know, Paul and I, we spoke out from early on, and I, I credit Paul. I mean, I, I remember first thing Paul did in the pandemic is he wrote letters to every major healthcare leader in the world. He was writing to Europe, all over the country, you know, uh, ministers of health, uh, health department heads in this country, he wrote to Cuomo. And he's basically trying to argue that there's no disease you cannot treat and think of simple, safe solutions. And, you know, some of the stuff that Paul was suggesting, you know, certain vitamins and nutraceuticals, um, you know, could have only helped. Uh, I don't know that they would have solved the, the pandemic, but we acted the way we thought a doctor should act. And I, I just I'm still shocked that so few uh, did similar history. And and so when you ask if I'm a, a, a revolutionary rebellion, I I. I 
I think in a way I'm rebelling, but I actually think I'm doing what you're supposed to do. And then, you know, but, but I don't know the, the world's you know, upside revolution. down. It's weird. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah. So Nathan, we did what, sorry, Nathan, we did what doctors are meant to do. You know, we put the patient first. We think of the, you know, the health and welfare of patients. And that's what we thought about. You know, we, we, the, you know, we didn't realize how captured the system really was, and we weren't really interested in that. We just wanted to do the right thing and the right thing for patients. And um, we were naive because, you know, we didn't realize against the enormous forces that we were fighting against. And I think, you know, it's still the basic principles that we stand for is, you know, patients come first. And, you know, the, the patient-physician relationship is is so central to this. Um, but unfortunately, the values of medicine have been... Yeah, perverted. when you look at the word revolution, you know, most people look at it as a social or political revolution, but it really just means to turn, to roll back, or to move in a circular course. So bring things back to the original purpose, right? And then restore, get this, means renewing mm. of something lost. So when you look at healthcare revolution it's a you're you're saying to circle back when you say restore you're saying to renew yes. something lost so so by the theme and the title you're implying that medicine has lost something it's lost its way right pierre i think so i mean particularly physician autonomy i mean it's just such a curated and controlled environment medicine you know the the you know, without going too far into, but you know, with this rapid expansion of health systems, right? Independent private practices, you know, are slowly decreasing. And and I just have to say, you know, Nathan, you're, you're in private practice, but I've been in private practice now for two years, and I am, I cannot tell you how I'll use the word fun, freeing, stimulating, interesting it is. I, I don't have a boss. I don't have telling anyone telling me what I can do, what I can't do, what medicines I can use. And and it's brought medicine, it, it, it kind of opened up a whole new, I don't know, like perspective as a physician. And I didn't, I never knew what private practice was. Remember, I'm a systems guy. As I, you know, you, there's no private practice ICUs. <laughs> so I've always worked for big hospitals. And and I could never walk into a hospital today. I wouldn't last three hours in a hospital. First of all, most of the people who work in those systems believe lies because they're fed lies constantly. Um, but yeah, but the, the, the autonomy that I enjoy now is, is so beautiful. Um, it, I'm able to help patients in ways that system doctors can't. System doctors can't use the stuff that I use. And, and it's, um, it, I, I'm, I, I've discovered, not only did I discover medicine as it ought to be, um, but I think we need to, we, we need to bring more pay. I mean, I don't know how to fix that system, right? So we're really trying to talk about how to like create maybe a new system or a parallel system or champion. Thank God that we still have private practice. I can, in my darkest moments, I can envision a world where suddenly private practices is abolished and made illegal or something. I, I, I don't know that would, that the world is already dystopian to me in COVID, but, um, thank God we still have it. Um, and we're not as we're not restricted, um, and you know that's just one one of the thoughts I have on 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 how, how to help uh, a system that's so sick. Yeah, Pierre, that's that that's scary. And you know, I think people look at what we do with um, with patients. You know, private practice, integrative, 
critical care, COVID, cancer. We love our profession. Getting up every day to go and serve people that carry that label patients. I think it's one of the honors of profession that is hard to touch. That's why I think the doctor patient relationship is so special. I don't think there's a, a relationship out there outside of marriage that yep. really is more special than that. It is, but with that comes great responsibility. And, um, you know, you both have, hmm. you have defended that relationship. You continue to defend that rela relationship. And now you're actually working to innovate and hopefully return or restore that relationship. So if we focus on the doctor-patient relationship, Paul, would you say the Hippocratic Oath or the, the general principles of what the Hippocratic Oath was, which is a code of ethics for doctors, but maybe also a bill of rights for patients, bringing that together. Do you see that as a, a part of a restoration of the doctor-patient relationship? What do you think we need to do there, Paul? Yeah, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the trust, so, I mean, the, the patient doctor relationship is so crucial to medicine because, you know, the, the physician should do what's in the patient's best interests and independent of any outside pressure. That's, that's what it represents. And then it should be an open dialogue between the patient and the physician. And so that, that has been lost to, to a great extent. And so it has to be returned. You know, patients need to be able to speak with their practitioner. They need to be on the same page. They need to understand each other. But th that has been eroded. So if, um, you know, if patients can't speak to their practitioners and ask them questions and engage in a dialogue, then that, that's an erosion of the patient-physician relationship, and it needs to be established. I, I want to add one to be reestablished. And, it, it, you know, if the patient, if the physician won't speak to the patient, patient's got to find a new physician that they can trust and speak with. Yeah, I, I want to add to that, Paul, because... Patients need not only access to their physician, but to an open-minded physician who can speak freely and give, you know, their own expert analysis of something, not just promote a narrative. But second thing that I think mostly about is patients need to be able to access the best available treatments. And unless you're in private practice, the best available treatments are those that are approved, right? Not just approved treatments, the best available treatments. And we know that the approval process for what gets promoted and what gets integrated into, into guidelines and standard of care is, is very much a controlled process when we, we know things that work that, you know, that, that will never get through the approval process. And, and I just want to finish by saying patients are realizing this. You know, when I say that, you know, COVID exposed the rot in, in the medical system, Paul and I, two people who are working deep in that system, it's also exposed it to a huge proportion of the population. And when Paul and I travel, we go to conferences and a lot of people come up to us and talk to us over and over and over again. We hear from patient, people saying that they're terrified of going to the hospital that they don't want to see their PCP anymore because of what happened in COVID, right? The, the PCPs are like pushing vaccines on all these patients. Meanwhile, the data is screaming about how toxic and lethal they are. And so now these patients 
they don't even, they can't even trust their system doctors anymore and they're fleeing, right? And so it's, they need access to, uh, you know, physicians who are open-minded, who are willing to treat them with the best available treatments based on their judgment and, and who also are exposed and seeking information outside of curated medical journals. And, and um, I, I think that's what we got to go to. I, I think the power of these journals and hospital systems, we're just not always like this. Remember, the history of medicine was really clinical. It was observational, right? Sharing observations, finding out things that worked, you know, not these corrupt randomized controlled trials that can tell you that a, you know, a boiled egg is, is harmful for you. Or I don't know, I could come up with a dumber example than that. But so then, anyway, that's just, let me that's ask my little you, rant. And, and those of you listening and watching understand <laughs> history is going to judge a lot of things that's happened over the last four years and a lot of things moving forward. These two gentlemen here, history right now and history in the future is going to judge them in a very, very positive light. So the words that they have to say, I hope you hear them and I hope you share them and spread them because uh, you are getting the opportunity to touch into the minds and the words of pioneers that I believe are going to just, their words are going to permeate through the decades and history to come. So understand what a treat you have here. Uh, Paul, Pierre touched on truth, trust. If patients have lost trust in doctors, in medicine, not, not all, but maybe parts, because that trust, it's, it, it's really, it's not that doctors have lost trust in patients, it's really that patients are losing trust in doctors and that that's creating some problems because it's pushing patients to things that are unscientific and are not evidence-based but it's partly the, the the industry's fault doctor's fault if trust is broken can we restore the current system is it is it reach you know is it repairable or does like what pierre said do we need to innovate and build a new system? Yeah, so that's a good question. So obviously trust is so important and I think patients have lost trust in the system. So, you know, what Pierre and myself and FLCC is doing is trying to create a network of physicians who you can trust and a system that you can trust. You know, we, we, we have no vested interest in setting any particular product. So we, we, we want to provide the truth. And there, there's no question that, you know, patients who are uh, in unfortunate situations will be exploited. So, you know, trust is, is such an important thing. And that's what we really want to reestablish is trust in the system. So that it's, it's, a, it's a bi-directional thing that, you know, the patients can trust the physicians, but the physicians can trust having an honest relationship with their patient. And so, you know, we, we, the system is broken. So we have to move forward and find a way that we can, you know, restore, as you said, it's a healthcare revolution, restoring the patient physician relationship. Uh, you know, I, th I like the way you framed it because it is a revolution, which means it turns back to what it was. And we, we need to reestablish that system. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know. I wonder, Paul, you know, and Nathan, I was going to add one thought, like, and I hate, I hate to say it like this, but like, 
you know, obviously we work in a capitalist system, right? But I don't know how to fix that system, uh, you know, the, the healthcare system. But let's say the kind of thing that Paul and I are trying to attract patients to, to learn and providers to, so they connect, you know, providers and patients, and we can all learn uh, in, in an objective fashion, you know, free of conflicts of interest. Let's say that becomes really, really popular. You know, I can envision where if the patients flee the system and are going to something better, that system is going to have to reform itself to survive, right? They can't keep doing what they're doing if everyone's fleeing. And so, again, that's probably a little bit of a grandiose Or the vision, system but, could go on the attack, um, Pierre. I, I do believe or that Or the system that could, could go on the, the attack system. to preserve itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they already are. They already are. I mean, look at me. I mean, I mean look at Paul. I mean, Paul uh, had to stop practicing medicine. I have 12 complaints against my uh, medical license and uh, a lot of colleagues. And, you know, and I am busy, at, you know, of, with my 18 jobs. One of them is defending my colleagues. You know, I have colleagues that are under grave threat of losing their license or losing their livelihoods. And, you know, these these corrupt medical boards, and I should say the medical orders are corrupt. They're controlled. They're just another tool in the system. But you're right. They're attacking doctors. And, and, you know, some of them have no longer the ability to practice medicine. And because medicine. of limitation of time, you know, one of the things I had wanted to do was to go into basically some of the attacks and just the, the outright, you know, seek to destroy um, approaches that you both have had to deal with. But if you go back to the podcast series that I did with Paul, he can give you some insight to that. But I wanted to start to, to wrap it up here, guys, because we could go on and on and on. And I want to be respective of your time. But I want to, again, really congratulate you both. And I really look up to you both because you guys have done the most difficult. You spoke up when nobody did. You acted when nobody did. And you continue to do that. So it's a, a Proverbs 31, 8, 8 through 9 in the Bible. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I think what you two have done and you continue to do is speak up for those that don't have a voice. Speak up for the patient, for the doctor-patient relationship. Speak mm. up for the needy. You've done that and you've taken the arrows and you've been the tip of the spear. So my hat's off to both of you. And that's why I'm honored to have spoken last year at the FLCCC and this year, because you guys, if there's going to be an innovation and a restoration and a revolution within healthcare, it's going to be because of the work that you two are involved with. And so thank you for what you've done. And thank you for what you're going to do in this conference. I mean, it, it truly is um, an honor for the people that are listening to hear your words here. And so if you're in the Valley or if you're not in the Valley, you need to get yourself to the conference because you're going to be a part of the change that is the future of medicine. And you're going to get to hear from two individuals that have spoken up, that have acted, that have fought the good fight. And they are now taking that impeccable timing and bringing that to a restoration 
of the doctor-patient relationship. Paul Pierre, there's there's something that I say to patients all the time. You know, when they come in with cancer, uh, fear is the dominant emotion. Hope is never one. But I tell them one of the things that we have to do that drives me and drives the clinic where I'm medical director is focus on building hope, focus on healing, teaching, service, serving the patient, building trust, and building a legacy of healing. So that's something that I tell our patients that that's what drives me. And I really see that in many ways, that is what's driving what you two are doing in your independent practices, but also what you're doing with FLCCC. You're building hope. You're restoring medicine to what it means, which is physician by the word, uh, the word means healer. You're teaching, that's very evident. Doctors, dossier means teacher. But you're rebuilding, restoring the trust. And in fact, when I look at the work that you two have done, you give me hope. Because there are days and there were days where I looked at medicine and I didn't know if I wanted to continue to be a part of it. And you guys have endured harder, more difficult things than I have. How do you, how do you hold the hope? Well, you know, Nathan, we, we all in this together. And, you know, I think, you know, hope is important and, you know, numbers are important. So us rallying together, you know, supporting each other, moving forward is really what's important. So, you know, it's not just Pierre and myself. It's a whole group of people who want to improve the system and people like yourself who see there's a better way forward. And, you know, we have to work together. We can't we can't do this alone. And so that's, that, you know, that's why we thank you for, you know, speaking with us. And that's why the conference is so important because it brings like-minded people together and we can move forward together because certainly we can't do this alone. Yeah. I, I just, you know, Nathan, everything you just said, you know, the other thing about the conference, cause you've been to them before. I mean, you could feel it. You could feel the connection. You could feel the spirit, the sentiment, the, just the, the community and, and the connections there. It, it's, it, it's really profound, and I and I really just I'll finish by saying I, I invite anyone uh, interested and in, uh, looking for a, a better way. So that way is to come, the healthcare that revolution, restoring the doctor-patient relationship, and that is going to be on. You can find that on the flccc.net website. You can sign up there. Again, it's open to everybody. You will find physicians there. You will find patients there. You will find reporters there. You will find editors there. I mean, it, it true. you guys are truly working to build a movement that I think, I don't think, I know, history is going to um, talk about for many years to come. So thank you very much for the work that you guys have done. Thank you for taking time out of your Sunday morning. I know we had to reschedule Paul because of because of weather issues, but thank you for doing this because I believe the message that you're bringing to the Phoenix area uh, just a few weeks from now, and we're going to turn this podcast around very quickly and we're going to drop it. We'll send you all the content uh, so you can splice it up in reels or however you want to send it out there because I think that's important. We need to have this place packed out because from that then, these patients, these individuals that come to the conference, they are gonna be the vectors of change that go back to their hometown, their hospital system, and work to affect change, revolution, regeneration, restoration. So thank you for what you guys have done, because like I said, you give me hope. Hope that medicine has a future. 
and it's it's truly an honor to get to know you guys. So I look forward to actually seeing you in person. So um, for you listeners and viewers, again, truly a treat to bring this to you. I encourage you to share this to everybody you know. And guess what? Come down to the conference, February 2nd through 4th, down in the Phoenix area, flccc.net. You can sign up. You'll find out the information there. Find the hotels. We're in the Valley of the Sun. There's plenty of hotels, okay? Plenty of hotels. So the weather is going to be pristine. It's going to be sunny. It's going to be 70s. It's going to be nice. So come uh, come enjoy it. And if you golf, bring your golf clubs. I don't. Got a bad back. So you know that stuff. But So 2023 for this podcast has been an amazing year. We're going to blow the lid off of 2024. We are January 2024. And and. Topics like what we're talking about here are going to really uh, be a focus of what we bring to you in 2024. So wherever you follow social media, we're there. Check out my pod, uh, podcast over at the drgoodyear.com or wherever you download podcasts. I encourage you to sign up and I encourage you to share this for, for people and with people that obviously have cancer or are struggling with cancer, but here that are interested in what's happened the last three, four years, or those that are focused on the doctor-patient relationship and restoring medicine to its purpose. Hope, healing, teaching, service, truth, trust, legacy. That's what it means to be a physician. And remember, hope is a confidence in a future, in a tomorrow. Guests like Dr. Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick give me hope in the confidence of the future of medicine. So until next time, I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear of the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. Hope it forward. For more information, just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond. Because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.